For the last several years, race and systems of oppression have been at the forefront of our political landscape, though not always in forms that have moved the needle much, if at all, until recently. The explosion of conversations on race has been accelerated by social media in the last several months, but how many of us are really being honest in our interactions? This week, I sit down with Kimberly Weir, a filmmaker, screenwriter, and activist from Chicago to talk about the intersection of race, gender, and politics. I'm your host, Joy Dertinger, and this is 99 Lead Balloons. Episode one, race, gender, and politics. Kim is a black producer and writer who lives in the city. And I've known Kim for about 12 years, I think now. And um, we went to college together and we did some, what is like drama club, I guess, together. Yeah, so I'm very excited. Thank you so much for being here, Kim. I really appreciate it. No problem. Thank you very much for having me. Of course, of course. This is a this is a total honor for me because um, I always um, I always like adored all of the communications uh, majors in in college and particularly like the film majors. I was like, whoa, that's so cool. You know, <laughs> and I just thought that was amazing. And um, and I still do, because what a what a fascinating thing to study, um, you know, and and that was an emphasis in in your degree, correct? Actually, I was a journalism major. So, oh, wow. Yeah, I know. It's crazy because like when I came to Moody, I definitely like my background was in writing and in theater and I knew that I wanted to go into uh, some form of journalism mm-hmm. um, just because I've always had a huge passion for history and for, for justice and, yeah. you know, being a journalist kind of made sense with that. Um, long story short, um, my passion for trauma <laughs> kind of took over after a while and I realized, oh, I, I really, I think that uh, my calling more, you know, is more in line with screenwriting. So. Mm. Um, life kind of led me away from journalism but yeah that's awesome what an amazing uh switch to go from journalism to like moving into like screenwriting and and things like that um I would love to hear more about that um but you can incorporate it into if you want into telling us a, a little bit more about yourself like anything you want whether Um, It's a synopsis of your entire life or a little bit about who you are right now or how you and how you got here or however you like to go into that. All righty. Well, a little bit about who I am right now. So I am a filmmaker and yeah, so part of that whole transition for me really was uh, it came about because I'd always really loved theater um, and movies and whatnot and you know, acting was like a huge part of my life growing up. And when I got to Moody, I still wanted to do that. And that's how I got involved in at Vivam and, you know, the plays and, and the drama department and everything that was going on. Um, but the more I did stuff like that, the more I kind of realized, I just kind I felt like there was limitations. Like we had a drama department, but Moody by no means was like a drama school. You know? Yeah. <laughs> That's we true. Had to be like play a year, you know. Like, <laughs> <laughs> um, I was constantly trying to push the envelope, and there was also a limitation of roles that were available, and that kind of goes, you know, ties in with the fact that there's maybe like five people of color at Moody at a given time, and like <laughs> you know, running into that wall, and yeah. the more frustrated I became with those limitations, the more I would want to be creating opportunities to to kind of break those walls. Um, And after a while, it just kind of clicked that, you know, you really love this and you really love being able to tell stories this particular way. And so it just kind of blossomed from there. I went and started um, uh, becoming a production assistant on independent films that people were making throughout the city. Like one day I literally just went on Craigslist and found a crew call and answered it and was like, I'm nobody from nowhere. (laughs) (laughs) coffee <laughs> and they said yeah come on out and I started working on independent films and uh you know 10 years later I'm creating my own work and you know hoping one of these days something clicks so wow. yeah that's so so cool um 
so you live in the city and how is that then with um with filmmaking does that make it easier does that make it harder oh it makes it easier by by far so okay. i've stayed local to chicago largely because um it has a really growing um industry specifically when it comes to like television production there's uh, mm. cinema spaces here and so there's a lot of work that comes and they have a, a strong independent scene mm. i mean it's still very true that eventually like if you want to make it in the industry you do you know mo most people will advise you to make the switch out to la or mm. even new york mm. um but um i don't know no offense <laughs> to anybody from la <laughs> but it is expensive yeah so I kinda, uh i've held off on that because like i have a lot of friends here and well, my whole life has been here for, you know, like two decades. Mm, so yeah, um, kind of waiting to feel a little bit more established before I make that leap. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. I can't, I mean, I've been to LA a handful of times and I remember um, thinking, wow, I, this is like so warm and it's so beautiful and we should live here. And then like just for kicks and giggles, looking at like rent for like a two bedroom. And I was like, oh my God. <laughs> I could never. Yeah. <laughs> I could never. Um, maybe we could be living nannies for someone. <laughs> right? Yeah. yeah. I Man. have a girlfriend who lives out there who's constantly like, just come. You know, she's mm. uh, she works in the industry as well. Yeah. Uh, and I'm like, do you have room in your apartment? <laughs> <laughs> the only way that I can just come. Right. <laughs> oh, that's hilarious. I mean, I'm glad though that like at least we're you're in Chicago. You have like you know, some, some way to like, um, be in more in that environment because, um, I mean, it, it, as much as Chicago can be frustrating, I still love it. Yes. Yeah. 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 <laughs> <laughs> well, um, so if it's okay with you, I'd love to hear a little bit more about, um, your cultural identity, your experiences, and just kind of who you are, um, that how that has shaped you um, and who you are within that, you know, sort of um, who you feel you, you were born and, and who you are. Yeah, so I am a black woman. Um, I mean, I don't have anything against the term African-American, but I, I typically like to say black just because uh, words are important and African-American can mean several different things to different people and black for me anyways um, it encompasses the whole diaspora right mm -hmm. so I'm black it's what I am yeah <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> so um, but I'm also adopted I was born in Chicago um, and put up for adoption I, I believe when I was around two years old mm. uh, and I came to live with my family around the age of four. And because adoption takes five ever, um, I wasn't officially <laughs> adopted. It does, so though. I, <laughs> <right>? Yes. <laughs> um, I wasn't officially adopted until I was seven, but kind of had lived with them since the age of four. Mm -hmm. um, and my parents are white Midwestern Bible Belt belts, Protestants, mm -hmm. and that shaped my early worldview led me to Moody. And um, that's kind of where the cookie drops, <laughs> um, starts to crumble. Um, I want to say that the first 10 years after leaving home at the round, you know, around the age of 18, were one of the hardest of my life, like everything else that I've been through after that, mm. you know, pandemic, who cares? Who cares? <laughs> I would take it over those 10 years any day. Oh, but God. What happened with me was um, I had to go through, for better or for worse, my parents, um, they, are, uh, they are racist people. And that's something that is hard for them to hear. That's something that's, something that's hard for me to say. But it, it is the reality of growing up in the world. You know, it's, it's the reality of the world. Like, we mm -hmm. all have these um, ingrained biases that society kind of instills in us, some people to an extreme degree, some people to a lesser, but they're nonetheless, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and so my parents' biases, they had instilled in me while also instilling this idea that we were living in a very post-racial society, which mm -hmm. we are not. No, we're not. <laughs> so, 
And you also grow up in a bit of a, a safety bubble, right? Like mm-hmm. the people in your neighborhood know you, they know your family. Um, so you get used to the way that you're being treated and you there, right? And then yeah. all of a sudden you're plopped into the world and everything that you thought was true turns out not to be true. You know, you're not going to be judged based off of, you know, the merit of your character. Oh, Christians can be racist too. And, <laughs> and you know, on and on and on and on. So it was a bit of a... Uh, a crucible those you know those first 10 years and I had to do a lot of soul searching and there was a time where I even like walked away from my faith just because I was like this doesn't make any sense and I would be an idiot to still believe in this God who's supposed to change people's hearts and pull people towards righteousness and where it at you know Mm, (laughs) yeah So um, I ended up walking away and especially since I was, you know, a very artistic person and wanting to do film and there were still Christians who were like dramas of the devil. And I'm like, okay. So, wow. Right. Yeah. I kind of threw myself into that and ended up realizing after a while that like, okay, I'm not any happier doing it this way. Mm. I still feel very called uh, and personally you know, I, I, there's no other way for me to say it other than to use a bit of Christianese. Like, I just still felt like God was knocking on my door constantly. Like, okay, well, they all suck, but I still want to talk to you. (laughs) (laughs) I love that. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Yeah. And I I was very much like, go away. But like, um, thankfully he didn't. So Mm. I had to like do a lot of soul searching and a lot of learning. And eventually like, I just decided for myself what I, believed mm-hmm. regardless of what my parents had taught me regardless of my experience in bible college like what do i believe yeah. and if that's what i believe then how do i want to live and um thankfully things went up from there <laughs> and <laughs> the uh, rest of my time i have really i've really been de- dedicating myself to um education and to being a positive influence for change yeah that's amazing i mean I oh gosh that's an incredible story um particularly uh you know growing up like you said in this just this like oh in a white family in midwestern bible belt um I feel like I know so many people who um who have grown up in a very conservative Christian, like you said, like safety bubble. Um, and it, it seems to always come out that when you leave home, right, when you are thrust out into the world, that that's when the other shoe drops and you have to come to grips with, wow, does this really pan out um, for the way that I'm experiencing life? And um and I, I think that, you know, in a lot of cases, similarly to yours, there's a lot of it that has to get shaken out. There's a lot of it that just has to go um, because it doesn't it doesn't work. Um, and I, I think that there is a lot more leeway and wiggle room than maybe we were taught growing up um, or in Bible college. Yeah. For sure. <laughs> Especially yeah. in Bible college, right? right. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just thinking back to like some cis Theo classes. <laughs> wow, really? <laughs> <laughs> like, do you, I don't know if, I don't know who you had for cis Theo. I had two different profs, you know, for like one and two. Um, and I, one of them, I walked out. So then I had to um, try and get into another class that was open because I was like, oh, I am absolutely not taking a class from this person. Oh, wow. Um, I mean, what was it, if you don't mind my asking, like, what was it that in particular that made you just like, I have to leave? <laughs> yeah, no, no, I don't mind at all. Um, so this particular professor, um, I was sitting there and I was like, okay, everybody, you know, there are a lot of people who say that he's super abrasive and there are a lot of other people who like really love him. And I'm a nerd. I've always been a nerd. So I really liked the nerd circles. Um, and the nerds in the nerd circles um, tended to be male. Um, it, they they just did. I think it's because the women were not um, particularly accepted or invited into those spaces. 
but they were like, oh, this professor, wow, he's good, you know, Mm. and he's just great. And you should totally take systematic theology from him. And I was like, all right. So I went and I sat down and he started the class very abruptly. And I was like, well, okay. They warned me that he was kind of abrasive. So whatever. And, (laughs) (laughs) and then after a couple of minutes, I like, I realized, you know, I realized right away, first of all, that I was like one of maybe three women in the room. And then I, uh, I, I was sitting there and I was like, I was sitting near the front because I'm really short. I always sit near the front so that I can see. I know this. Yeah. Yes. (laughs) You know, (laughs) and, um, and the other women were sitting like in the back and I was like, well, I mean, okay. Um, I'm all by myself up here, but like, whatever, it's fine. And then he, he kind of introduces himself a little bit and tells us a little bit about the class. And then very abruptly, he's like, would all the women in the class please uh, raise their hands? And I was like, mm, you can see us and so can everyone else. So I don't know why we need to raise our hands. Um, <laughs> all right, where's this going? Yeah, okay. but I was like, okay. So I raised my hand and he's like, okay, great. Now, would all the women uh, please stand up? And I'm like, what is going on? And so, you know, we all stand up. And then he's like, you know, I just like, you need to know now that you're going to get a lower grade than your male counterparts who are here. And I was like, excuse you. (laughs) Who, who, what, 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 what? And he was like, it's just that they, um, you know, they're not as worried about other things as you, as you women are. And like, you're easily distracted. And honestly, men just do better with these topics than women do. And he was like, and if you're not okay with that, you can get out of my class now. And so I picked up my books and resisted the urge to flip him the bird because I didn't want to get expelled. (laughs) (laughs) You're like, there's that. I did pay a lot of money, you know. (laughs) I'm working and trying to pay my way through school. This would totally, like, that would bite me in the ass so hard. Don't do it. So, So I, like, I remember just, like, have you ever been so angry that you shake, that you're just shaking? Yes. Yeah. And I remember like trembling as I picked up my books and my bags and like dropping pens. And I just like left them. I was like, I don't care. I can find new pens. And I just, I walked out. I took my books and my bag and walked out. And like he said some snarky remark as I walked out. And, um, and that was that I walked out and I, I dropped his class. That's I like went immediately back to my room, to my computer, dropped his class and tried to find any other class that had any openings. Um, I was able to get out a wait list for a class and, um, emailed the professor for that one and was like, I just had a really terrible experience in another class and I dropped it. And so please let me come to your class. And he was like, okay, that was it. Um, and he didn't ask me, ironically, now that I think about it in retrospect, he didn't ask me what terrible experience I'd had. Um, (laughs) but he knew the name of the professor whose class I had registered for. Um, and so he probably was aware, uh, now like years removed. Um, I've talked to other women and, um, other people who are like, Oh, yeah, that sounds accurate. Um, Yeah. So I would assume he was aware. (laughs) (laughs) Isn't it it crazy how that goes? Like when it's happening to you, a lot of these things, like you assume you're alone in the room, you know what Mm -hmm. I mean? And then to find out after the fact, there's all these people who are like, oh, yeah. And you're like, well, why Why didn't you warn me? (laughs) Why didn't you warn me? Yeah. Why why haven't more things been done about this? Yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, and uh, that's I think that like what you're saying about, uh, you know, that being like where the cookie crumbles. I, gosh, um, it really crumbles. Right. Um, and I can imagine specifically for you even more so uh, than it did for me. Um, and so that experience of like, OK, this it doesn't 
it doesn't line up. Uh, it doesn't work anymore. And then walking away and then, like you said, eventually returning to that. And But like making it your own and, and like saying, I can, I can, I'm smart. I, I can figure this out and I don't need you to tell me, right? Because <laughs> I'm an intelligent human being. And so like I, I can figure out what I believe. And um, I think that that is a story that like, makes me hopeful um so i'm glad because uh, lord knows hope is all i'm hanging on to these days <laughs> <laughs> yeah like so our world is uh is an absolute disaster um garbage fire <laughs> <laughs> really is <laughs> oh my gosh it 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 is and i feel like um you know, over the past several years, I kept thinking like, well, if I learned more, then it won't be so bad. You know, the more you learn, the worse you get. <laughs> so true. I was like, oh, my gosh, now there's all these other things to be mad about. <laughs> oh, my Lord. I do. One of my friends uh, literally, you know, pointed out one day, they're like, you are angry about so many things. I'm like, yes. Mm. <laughs> Yes. yes. That's the truth. <laughs> Ask the celery, you know. Like, <laughs> the truth, like the more yeah. you learn, I, I mean, there's that wonderful quote by James Baldwin, you know, like, and I feel like this is true for anybody who is looking at the world with eyes open right now and, and really trying to look at what's going on around them is that, um, you know, to be black in America is to be in a constant state of rage. Mm. Uh, I think awake in america right now is to be in a constant state of rage so. <laughs> yes <laughs> yeah oh man i i remember uh the first time that i read that quote and i so i've i've had similar experiences where people have told me like wow you're really angry like about many things right um yeah. but i remember you know um reading that quote and feeling like just this like um like this prick of heat like Oh, and everybody, th and everybody thinks I'm mad, you know, yeah. <laughs> like guarantee you, I am not as angry <laughs> as many other people in America. Right. And yeah. it's such a cop out, right? Like mm -hmm. this whole, you're angry thing as if anger isn't a valid human emotion. As if yeah. we aren't meant to be angry about injustice, about, you know. Um, inequality and you know, all these different things. I'm like, uh, the fact that you're not angry is making me angrier. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I can't remember who said it, but someone said never in the history of calming down has anyone ever calmed down because they were told to calm down. <laughs> it's the truth. Right? <laughs> oh man. Yeah. It's, it's wild. And yeah, this, this whole world is, um, it is uncomfortable right now. Like you said, if you're half awake, it is, it's uncomfortable and it should cause you, even if you don't become fully angry, like I think you should get angry. Um, however, that being said, even if you're not to a point of anger yet, it should at least cause you to go, Ooh, I am uncomfortable with this. I don't yeah. like, I don't like the way that things are right now. Right. Um, and we, it's one of those very strange things that when we're uncomfortable, we're like, well, I don't like to be uncomfortable. So I'm going to pretend this isn't real. And so I'm going right. to layer over it with other things, with platitudes and religion and well, you know, just be a good person and bootstrap, you know, right. <laughs> like <laughs> ideology, which is literally impossible. Just so impossible. It's actually impossible. Um, <laughs> so, I, you know, I think about all of those things and, and for me, uh, it's not the totality of it, but a whole lot of it boils down to our, our infrastructure, our political system, our government, um, the way that all of that is set up. And so then, um, you know, I've become very engaged politically um, because how are we going to change a, a system if we don't participate in, you know, in influencing that system? Um, and so 
as a result of that, like, I was like, well, I better learn more about what this is because I can't just go out there and be voting willy nilly for whoever. Um, I need to know. <laughs> just anybody, just name, I'll just check it. <laughs> Let's see. Do they have a D behind their name? Do they have an R? For some people, it's that simple, and and it blows my mind. Mm, Yeah. Oh gosh, the first the first election that I voted in, I voted um, for who I was told to vote for. Uh, What election year was that? Um, let's see. I would have been. How many years ago was that? I was. um, Yeah, I was eighteen. And so that would have been 32, 14 years ago, would have been 2006, mm. right? 2006, 2000, yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So I think we, um, I know that Obama's election year was the very first year that I could like actually, you know, like I had been able to vote for like you know, like local, you know, legislature and things before that. But that was like mm-hmm. the first presidential year. Yeah. And, not, and what a year to start. I was like, Man. Obama all the way. Yeah. And I remember um, getting so much pushback about that at movies because, mm. you know, he was a Democrat. And, you know, what about, you know, what about babies and abortion? And yeah. um, <laughs> oh not that, that is not an important issue, but uh, for me, it was just never that black and white, you know, pardon the pun, but like, yeah. uh, to, to me, um, putting a, putting a black man in office just outweighed everything else. And I had particular reasons for that, but um, I, don't, I don't know that they were very well received. Mm. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Moody was definitely very like no vote for the Republican guy. Um, and to my knowledge, there have been no uh, black Republican candidates for presidency. So ever, ever, literally <laughs> ever. It's What year is it? Hold on. Oh, God. Yeah, it's. Yeah. So, I mean, I can imagine that being incredibly difficult and frustrating. And so then that, you know, political system, like you said, you know, um, putting a black man in office was more important and for, you know, myriad reasons, probably. So I think about the ways that, you know, politics affect everyone ultimately, um, but very particularly the black community. Um, And so that's like, one obvious example of, you know, I have to vote with my convictions and I have to vote for, for who I feel needs to be in office right now. Um, and so, you know, that all coming about, I mean, gosh, there are so many ways that, that the black community is, is affected by politics, by who's in office, by who is literally making the laws. Right. Um, so, Tell us a little bit about, you know, what that looks like, about anything that you want to talk about with regard to politics and and lawmaking and how all of that, even the system of voting, um, can affect you and and others in the black community. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, I think I just have to say that without doubt, the black Black Americans are the most discriminated against, the most oppressed, um, you know, demographic. Besides, you know, Native Americans on on American soil, like there mm-hmm. is so much data to back that up. Yeah. That is an irreversible fact. Like anybody who has done the research and you know, anybody who's taken the time to study knows that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't think there's anybody out there in the world who, if given the choice to trade lives you know, with a black person, is going to be like, sign me up. You know, right. like that's, <laughs> that's not, um, I mean, that's just not reality, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and while it's important that we have, it's important that we call it what it is. It is a product of racism, mm-hmm. institutional racism. Um, but the key word there is institution. We got here 
not just as a matter of practice, you know, hurt things that, you know, you hear a lot of people say, you know, this is a gospel issue. Only the gospel can root out the sin of racism. And I'm like, perhaps correct. But, <laughs> but you know. <laughs> but gosh dang, there are sure are a lot of systems upholding it, right? <laughs> right. Like, here's the funny thing. Like, you know, if somebody wants to murder somebody else, they're going to do it regardless of what the law says. But the law <laughs> is still important. Yes. <laughs> Oh, that's true. <laughs> um, so when we have an institution that is founded in racism, that is founded in suppressing one group and elevating another, then we need to dismantle that institution. We got here as a matter of policy. And by here, um, you know, uh, uh, what I mean by that is that um, there have been multiple reports done, you know, the uh, there was the Kernow report back in uh, 1968 that they did, where they compared the state of white workers to, you know, the average black worker, uh, the median class is what they called it. And they did an update of that um, in, I believe it was 2018. Mm. Uh, I mean, we'll say loosely 2018. <laughs> they did an update of that to see how far we had progressed. Like, let's do an accurate model of like American progression. And what they overwhelmingly found is that in a span of five decades, not only had the general welfare of Black Americans not improved, in some cases, we'd actually regressed. You know, like on the one hand, it goes without saying, we made it in, like we made it illegal to hold, you know, Black Americans as slaves. So already my life is way better than, you know, someone <laughs> it's way better than it could have been right yeah but that doesn't change the fact that in every demographic like in every way possible whether that's housing or health or employment or um you know incarceration rates we are behind white americans and as time has gone on those that that gap has only increased mm -hmm. so when you do that side by side comparison you know, and the data says, you know, actually the statistics show that you're not progressing, you're actually regressing. Like we have to address that. That's yeah. huge. That's, oh, that's yeah. insane, you know, mm -hmm. um, that you would have five decades to make some sort of improvement and not actually improve. Um, you know, one area where we have improved is education. You know, more of us are educated than ever and yet we're not able to get houses, you know, more of us are employed than ever. And yet, you know, we're not able to close the, you know, the wealth gap. In fact, now white families make 10 times what we do, you know, on average, you know, and mm. that's not an issue. That's not a heart issue. That's a policy issue. That's how we've structured our society. Mm -hmm. That's redlining, you know, that's, <laughs> mm. And that's Alec, you know, like, yes. Oh my gosh. <laughs> so, I mean, that's, so when it comes so when I sit down and figure out who I'm going to vote for, I do so with the knowledge that whoever I put my vote behind better understand that they better understand, um, where black society actually is and what can be done to help them. And if they don't understand it, well, then they better at least talk like they do. They better mm -hmm. at least have some game plan to do something somewhere that is gonna inch us a little bit further, mm -hmm. whether that be through, you know, healthcare programs or, or, or whatever it be, mm -hmm. you know, if they're talking on the other side of the aisle about you should be doing more to pull yourself up, that tells me that they don't understand what's going on. Like they don't see me, they don't see what's going on. This person isn't going to this person isn't going to advance my cause. Ergo, how can I morally put my vote behind them? You know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Gosh. And uh, there's so much there that you mentioned that I'm like, oh my gosh, I just want to unpack everything. Um, <laughs> like, first of all, uh, redlining. Mm -hmm. I was a grown ass adult when I found out about redlining. That's not okay. That's something that should have been taught as part of our history. Um, or at least, you know, the history that the history books that I was reading. I don't know. Maybe other people learned about it sooner. Um, but I had no clue until I was an adult. And um, and I remember thinking, how was that not illegal? 
right? Yeah. Um, and and even to this day, uh, you know, realizing that a, a black family has to make three times as much as a white family to live in the same neighborhood, to buy the same house, to get approved for the same mortgage. That's insane. Mm-hmm. That's insane. And um, and that's a holdover from redlining. That's a holdover, like you said, from the from the wealth gap that that is increasing. Um, that's an issue of you know, lack of access to uh, so many things. Oh my gosh, childcare, healthcare. Uh, you know, um, there's not equal representation in, in education, um, but all of these things. And, um, and it is all written into our policies, into our politics, um, which brings me to Alec. Yes. Oh, oh my gosh. I learned about Alec in the last year and I had the same response which is betraying how just how little I know right um that I thought to myself that cannot possibly be legal and yet it is and here we are and um and I I remember thinking who the heck wants this who who thinks this is a good idea and then you know learning more about well who funds alec right it's big corporations like walmart amazon um huge huge companies that will benefit from the laws that alec writes um you know, and then lawmakers uh, get their draft, insert their state name um, and their, you know, their their name and their position and whatever. And that's it. That's somebody has written it for them. And, you know, and here put this on the table, put this on the docket um, like a cog in a machine. Yeah. It's very systematic, um, yeah. you know, and, you know, this strays into territory of like, okay, so how is a capitalist society meant to function, you know, the way that we set it up and intended it and mm-hmm. versus how it's actually manifested. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that when anybody started this grand experiment, this, you know, the American <laughs> experiment, yeah. that they thought to themselves, wouldn't it be great? <laughs> <laughs> a bunch of gigantic corporations you know, kind of just decided what laws got passed and what laws didn't. Mm. And that was, you know, like Mm. effectively robbing the people of their vote, you know, of their their voice. Um, So no, like that's not how anybody intended this thing to work, but that's very much how it is working. Mm. You know, the the billions of dollars that gets traded hands for these lobbyists and for these, um, I call them corporate politicians. I mean, for these corporate politicians to shape the world on somebody else's, you know, on somebody else's dime, it's, it's, it's ludicrous. It's just another example of, of a broken system that we haven't really fully acknowledged, but the information is out there, mm. you know, and that's the importance of educating yourself. Because if you don't understand these things, if you really do not take the time to research them, figure out how they work, and then ask yourself, how do they affect your world? Does the existence of something like Alec make it easier or harder for me to express my voice, express my power as, as a, an American citizen? Mm. Um, and if the answer is no, then it needs to go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, gosh, absolutely. Um, you know, and, and I think that you, you bring up uh, something that, especially more recently, I have realized that if we don't know, like you said, the information's out there. And, um, and I, I think that in the last five years, about five years ago was when I went, this cannot possibly be okay. And it was when Trump was campaigning, um, for the first time. And I kept thinking he's the opposite of what everyone taught me in Mm -hmm. church, in college, growing Mm up. Right. Yeah. He's the thing that everyone said, don't be like that. You know, he's so many things that, that we were taught not to be in. And, um, you know, even in the sense of like, you know, coming from a white Christian church, you know, we were taught like 
I, I remember being taught don't be racist, right? Mm. But like almost as like a, we know you're not going to do that. But just in case, don't be racist. Um, right. And that was the extent, right, of like my education on that topic um, as a child and, and growing up in the church. Um, but even that, you know, even by white church's standards, that being my only experience, I was able to look at Trump and go, oh, he's racist. He's racist. He's a rapist. He's um, xenophobic. He's, you know, um, he's misogynistic. He's all of these things. He lies. He cheats. He steals. He hurts people on purpose. He's all of the things, right, that we're told, um, especially in the church, don't do that. Don't be like that. That's not... Um, you're not representing God's character when you do that. Um, and so never, never be like that. And, and having good moral character, good moral fiber was a really big thing, right? Right. Especially when it came to who we were going to vote for. Um, and I remember the day that Trump uh, flipped on his abortion stance and kind of going like, is anybody else seeing, seeing this? Have you guys yeah. noticed that this somehow magically <laughs> happened in 24 hours when he realized he needed your vote? Um, like, <laughs> shocking. Um, but I think that was the catalyst for me um, and kind of going, huh? How is it that everybody is okay with this? Because it yeah. turned out that like saying these things are wrong and you're the ones that taught me it was wrong. Like surely none of you are going to vote for this person. And, um, my husband was a pastor at the time and, oh boy, it, the backlash was swift and it was fierce. And I remember thinking, but you guys are the ones who taught me this, right? And, um, that was the moment for me that I started reading and discovering and going like, well, there's so much out here. All we have to do is take the time to research it. Um, and I, it was like drinking from a fire hose. Um, just huge influx of enormous amounts of information that I thought, how come I didn't know this? Um, part of that literally just boils down to my privilege. I didn't have to know it. I didn't have to think about it. It was something that was very simple. I could just exist in my world and be unaffected. Um, and then... That is, I think, the, the, the mentality that, like, sinks the entire thing, that perpetuates the system, is just this, like, I'm fine. And so everybody else is probably fine, too. Um, but like you said, the information is out there. And so taking the time to research and taking the time to learn. And then really in the last um, couple of years, especially since I started working in social services, um, I realized I am never going to be done learning. Like literally never. This is a lifelong thing. Um, and I have to like, it just has to be part of my, my normal life. Um, because I think in the beginning I thought, well, I'll learn everything and then I'll, I'll be able to do something about it. Um, but the reality is um, if it's not something that we experience and that we know, um, for, you know, the first 20 something years of our lives, if it's not a part of who we are, if it's not a part of our community, it's not a part of our culture, um, that work is, is never going to be over. We're never going to be able to just like say, okay, well, I figured I found it. You know, I found the answer and I learned it all. And now I can be, um, I, I'm done sort of thing. I'm done learning and now I can just do things. And that, that part um, is never going to go away. And I think um, part of that, like I said, is just because it's like 20, it's like almost three decades of life that has just gone by. And you can't make that up in a week. You can't make that up in a year. Um, the amount of education that is um, missed. But also we have to keep learning. It seems to me that we have to keep learning because things keep changing and it's insidious right. and laws 
keep getting passed and laws keep getting written and lobbyists keep coming up with more money and things um it's like shape-shifting before our eyes um and so even if there was a way to sort of like condense all of the information i don't think that that would even work because there there's always something that's changing and there's always a new way that's being thought of um to perpetuate what has been written and what has been created um I think it's so interesting that you bring that up because until we really come at it from the mentality of like, no, there is a power working against us. Like it is not in our best interest. It does not have us in mind. It really couldn't give a flying flip about us, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, Cause that's the thing about a corporation. Like they're, a, they're not a person, they're not a people. They are a hundred percent about their bottom line mm-hmm. and regardless of who it squeezes, no matter where that pressure comes, you know, like no matter what comes about that pressure, they're always going to be trying to get more and more money towards their bottom line. And that is it. Mm. That's it. You know, that's right. business. Right. Um, and this is why a corporation shouldn't have a vote. <laughs> <But> like, <laughs> Somehow. Uh, mm. So when that's the power that you are up against, you have to look at it that way. You, you can't afford to look at it any other way because right. that's the only way that you're going to be on top of your game. Like when you really understand what you're up against, that's when you're hitting the books. That's when you're watching, you know, the, the elections. That's when you're listening to what these politicians are saying. That's when you're Googling, like, okay, he said this, but is it true? You know, mm-hmm. like what are the actual facts? Um, and that's how you become an engaged citizen because when you understand what you're up against, you understand that you don't, have any other choice you either let this happen to you or you push back against it mm. yeah oh something that you said there just gives me chills that like this politician said something but now we have to google and fact check it mm-hmm. um i i remember like kind of thinking like well you know, politicians, they all kind of bend things to go their way, right? But never truly, um, for a long time, never truly understanding just how serious um, and how far they're willing to go. Um, And the fact that that is just a normal part of being, as you said, an engaged citizen um, in, in our system, in our culture, is... I don't think, like you said, I, I, don't, I don't think anybody thought, hey, you know what's a great idea? We should, <laughs> we should make everyone in office a total liar. <laughs> oh my gosh, best idea ever. Right? <laughs> it's going to be great. <laughs> and no one will ever know what the truth is. And by the time you figure it out, there will be other people who have accepted it as fact without doing any of their own research. And then it's just a battle. Yeah. Yeah. It is an uphill battle, but, um, you know, we just kind of, that's part of the reason why I made a personal decision to be so politically vocal is that you only reach people 1% at a time, right? You know, Mm, and you can't force someone to listen to you. You can't even force someone to hear what you're actually saying a lot of the times, Lord Almighty. (laughs) But but I do believe um, that truth finds ready soil. And, you know, you, you flip one person, you you flip a light in one person's head of like, okay, maybe I do need to do more research, or maybe I hadn't thought of it that way. Let me do a little digging and see if I, you know, and see what's really going on. Mm. That's all I ask. You know what I mean? Like if you can spark someone to be, more of an engaged thinker, um, you know, when it comes to how they're casting their vote, then, you know, that, hmm. that, that's the best you can do. You know, that's the best that each of us can do. And yeah. for all doing that, it will make a difference, you know? Mm. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Something that I've been thinking a lot about, like, especially what you said about it's one person at a time. It's how 
generally you just you have to reach people one person at a time it's all about relationship even like you said getting them to go and do their own googling like oh is that true this person said it's true and normally i trust this person so i think i'll go google that now um because it's not something that i had ever heard uh which makes me think about things like um the 13th amendment Um, which, you know, we were chatting before uh, recording a little bit about um, 13th by uh, Ava DuVernay. Um, And the the language that is specifically written into the 13th Amendment that says that no person can be enslaved except as punishment for a crime. Mm -hmm. Um, And the fact that that is still a part of our 13th Amendment and that it is still a, a you know a working piece of our constitution is bone chilling. Um, it's bone chilling, especially if you understand what immediately happened as a result of that, right? Mm-hmm. So, I mean, again, I, earlier I mentioned like the Kurnoff study that was done, you know, in 1968. Um, all right, so in 1968, I believe, again, we'll, we'll put a little star next to it, um, in 1968, it was something like 14% of, you know, Black Americans, you know, were incarcerated, right? Mm-hmm. Um, or, or they were like 14% more likely to be incarcerated mm-hmm. um, over white Americans. Okay. And today, that has astronomically skyrocketed, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. You have, uh, like, we're six times more likely to end up incarcerated um, than our white peers, just like across the board. That's and it's, it's something like, it, it, it's, it's just something, it's just something astronomical. Like, mm-hmm. I wish I could just pull the numbers out of my head right now, but Google it. Um, Google it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it's, it's just, it's just astronomical when you consider the fact that at some point we just decided um, as a society, what needed to happen to people was prison, you know, like, uh, people are finding it hard to find jobs. Okay. Start shoveling. And this is, and this goes for like everybody like this. It's not just black Americans who've seen an increased incarceration. White Americans have as well. Mm-hmm. Poor disadvantaged white men are more likely to be incarcerated today than they were back in 1968. Um, it's just happening at a faster rate for you know black men, of course. Mm-hmm. Um, so this, so when we consider the fact that our prisons are privatized and they, it is literally a business to incarcerate people, and off of that you get slave labor. There is no other name for it, unpaid labor. Hmm. <laughs> when it's literally written into our Thirteenth Amendment that like as punishment for a crime, you can now be an, an enslaved individual. Um, you have these prisoners who are you know tied into building american infrastructure like there was this harrowing picture in um floating around you know twitter the other day this journalist had gone to i i want to say georgia the governor of georgia's like you know uh i don't know what his home would be called but anyway yeah mansion or whatever right (laughs) (laughs) his mansion, his, his literal plantation. Yeah. And, um, his entire staff is prisoners. Um, and they're overseen by a white warden. Mm. Um, and he kind of got to interview some of them and, um, you know, kind of like, Hey, do you, do you see how this looks? Oh my <laughs> and God. It's just general acceptance that this is the way things are, you know? Um, we, outlawed slavery on paper and then but we left a loophole and we're surprised when incarcerating american citizens becomes a business in Mm. and of itself you know yeah like it's 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 ludicrous yeah i remember um hearing about um agriculture and how that plays a part you know that is a part of the prison industrial complex as well and um, you know, learning that like, oh my gosh, there are literal, there are literal plantations yeah. where, you know, we're getting potatoes, for example, 
from what we might think of as a rural farm with some happy, you know, little family doing their farm thing. Um, but that's probably not actually where it came from. It was very likely farmed by enslaved people because they were incarcerated. Um, and I remember thinking about that and thinking, oh my gosh, that's where, that's where a lot of our food comes from. Um, And see, and and then going. How does how do we not see a parallel? Like you said, do you see how this looks? Because um, that looks pretty bad. Um, <laughs> and 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 just thinking about that, thinking about like textiles, thinking about. Um, I remember when my daughter had to um, get glasses. She's she's going to be ten now, but uh, when we found out she needed glasses, she was five. Um. And I remember, so we were on Medicaid, um, and the medical card only covers certain brands of, you know, eyewear and whatever. And so we were just going with whatever frames were covered through our, um, through our medical card. And the eye doctor said, um, these are the only frames, you know, but we can get them really fast because they're made, um, they're, they're actually made at the Joliet prison. Um, and you won't have to wait for them to be shipped, you know, from some other place. They'll, they'll get shipped to us really, really quickly. And I thought, huh? What? And then I was like, well, what do you mean? Um, and he said, yeah, the, pr- the prisoners, like, make them. And I was like, I'm sorry, what? And he's like, yeah, you know, it's really good for them because, like, they get to learn a skill. And, like, practice a trade, you know, while they're in prison. And, you know, and and then, like, you get cheap glasses. And I was like, what? That's, what? Like, no, learning a skill, learning a trade, that's going to class. That's, like, getting a college degree. That's, you know, that's what I would consider learning a skill or gaining education or or learning a trade. Um, What you just described is just, like forcing people to work without paying them what you described was a sweatshop (laughs) yeah yes you just described a whole big building full of enslaved people um and i remember thinking in that moment like wait a minute so the money from the government right because i had the medical card so the money from Medicaid, from the, the state of Illinois, that's funneled to us from the federal system also, um, from the federal government, is now being paid, you know, they're paying this prison for a pair of glasses. And they're, they're paying for this particular brand because they're cheaper. And they're cheaper because they're not paying their laborers. Um, and so who's pocketing the money? Because it still cost like over $100 for those frames. It was still expensive. Um, and I didn't have to pay it, but the government did. Um, and I get a statement. I know, you know. Um, and I remember thinking that money is coming from the government and is being paid to someone and like, you know, taking that like nanosecond to piece together yeah. like... <laughs> Oh my God, it's going to whoever owns the prison. Mm-hmm. That money is just is just going to whoever owns it. Um, and then learning that like, wow, a lot of prisons are like privately owned and operated. Um, yep. So how, you know, kind of thinking about like, well, how does that work then within our government? Um, because if it's privately owned and operated, then it's it's probably not subject to the same regulations um, as as a, a you know a prison that's not privately owned. Um, right. <laughs> you know, it's just kind of simple. That's how it works in, like you said, capitalistic society. Um, and so, really thinking about that, thinking about like, wow, if eyeglasses are made there, probably other medical equipment is also made in prisons. And then sort of delving into those other things, like the the reality that if you buy something that says made in the USA, it was probably actually made by prisoners. Right. Um, 
it is astounding. It is one of the darkest rabbit holes you'll ever fall down, but it is yeah. the, the fall is necessary. Like mm-hmm. I'd push you if I could, but like <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. On the next episode of 99 Lead Balloons, Kim and I continue our conversation on race, politics, and systems of oppression. You've been listening to 99 Lead Balloons, honest talk about shit society ignores. Special thanks to my guest, Kimberly Weir, for joining me. For more information on projects Kim is involved with, follow her on Twitter at KJOR. Links to studies referenced are available in the liner notes. Graphic and web design by Chris Campbell Creative. Go to chriscampbell.com for more. Theme song by Luciano Music Company. Licensed by Premium Beat by Shutterstock. Produced and edited by Stoke the Wild Studios. To stay up to date on episodes and content, follow us on Instagram and Twitter at 99pod or go to 99pod.com. Thanks for listening. We'll catch you next week.